from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. The basic modern history of abstract art is that it starts in the 19-teens. And typically, it's credited to three pioneer painters. Kandinsky and Malevich in Russia, Mondrian in the Netherlands. Each of whom abandoned conventional picture-making in different ways and then wrote manifestos about themselves and their ideas. And thus, the canon and history was all set. But... An exhibition now at the Guggenheim Museum in New York is completely overturning that truth universally acknowledged. The show is called Hilma auf Klint, Paintings for the Future, consisting of abstract paintings made starting in 1906 by a middle-aged Swedish woman, who until now almost nobody had ever heard of. All of the work on display is flabbergasting, and lots of it I absolutely loved, like pretty much everyone else does. I felt like I could stand there and look at it all day and not be tired of it. I'd seen reproductions of these before the show came, and I thought that they were going to be pretty small. And then just seeing the monumental size is really stunning. It's really beautiful. The Off Clint show has been topic A in the art world all season long. How did this artist invent radically abstract art before any of the famous artists, the men, who got all the credit? The answer is a great complicated story, and Studio 360's Lauren Hansen set out to unravel that mystery of Hilma Off Clint. She started at the Guggenheim. When you walk up the first ramp in the Guggenheim, the first series of paintings you see by Hilma Off Klint are called the Ten Largest. They are ten abstract paintings hung very closely together. They blanket a wall, basically end to end, in a side gallery. And they're huge, more than ten feet tall. And walking into that space and seeing those paintings was just transformative for me. You know, it was really like, oh my God. Roberta Smith is the longtime art critic for the New York Times. The thing that impressed me the most was this kind of mysterious thing called scale, you know, which is a combination of size and, and of a relationship of the parts to the whole. And her scale was so radical. The paintings don't depict any one thing necessarily, although you can probably pick out some familiar shapes. There are floral patterns and spirals and circles and this loopy cursive. But they're very modern. It's almost hard to believe that they were made a century ago. They look like something that emerged out of a 1970s dream and would hang handsomely in an all-glass home in the Hollywood Hills. The colors are very much not the colors that we think about and associate with the history of abstraction. Micah Pollock is an art historian and professor. Purple and green and orange. Like dried tangerine skin. It, it just seemed very unfamiliar. 
What's remarkable is that these massive abstract paintings were made in 1906 and 1907. In other words, at least five years before Kandinsky mansplained abstract art in his manifesto about his own abstract art, Hilma Ofklint was actually making abstract art, even if she wasn't tooting her own horn for doing so. I'm not sure why it's a race and someone has to get there first, but yeah, it does look like she was there first. To think that this triumvirate of Kandinsky, Mondriana, Malevich was going to have a new member, and it was a woman, and she got there first, was just thunderous to me. But who was this woman? Even for art experts, this likely probable founder of modern abstraction was a mystery. I saw many, many exhibitions on modernism and and that period, and I thought it's very unlikely I come across someone who is as important as Hilma F. Clint was. And so it, it really struck me that this artist was completely unknown to me. Julia Voss is an art historian in Berlin who is now writing the first substantial biography on Hilma F. Clint. She says Hilma's story begins in 1862, in Stockholm, where she's born into a family of naval officers. Her family were actually the makers of the big nautical charts um, of the Baltic Sea. Um, and what, they, what you actually do is you make something that is hidden because it's underwater, you make it visible for other people. And I think that's very comparable to what she's doing. She also makes a world that is hidden to other people visible to them. She attended the Royal Academy during the early years of when they let women into the Royal Academy. Tracy Bashkoff is the curator of the Helma F. Clint exhibition at the Guggenheim. She would have been trained as a traditional painter and done sort of classical uh, drawing and painting exercises, making landscapes, portraits. I mean, when she studied at the Academy, she got a gold medal for a history painting, which is absolutely extraordinary for a woman in the 1880s. So I think there would have been a career path there, but she wasn't interested. In 1906, she starts a completely new thing. So, in 1906, Hilma F. Clint begins a whole new artistic and professional venture, one that would be a total right turn from her strict academic education. But what's interesting is that the timing isn't coincidental. There is a lot going on at this moment. The turn of the 20th century was a time of rapid change and huge scientific, medical, and technological advances. The telephone in 1876, right, with Alexander Graham Bell, and the radio was invented in 1894. The X-ray was invented in 1895. The discovery of atoms and small particles opens up the idea that the world itself is made sort of of more than just meets the eye. And Hillman doesn't shy away from this new world progress. She jumps right in, putting her academic artistic training to use. She gets work illustrating medical journals. But all of these scientific developments inspire Hilma and many other artists and thinkers to start questioning other things about their world and the possibilities beyond it. The 19th century sort of people were still very religious. So the idea that there is a higher sphere is kind of common to everyone and every sort of the majority believes in it. Sort of the question only is how can it be reached? And suddenly sort of science says, you know, we might be the ones. We might be the ones who can reach it. And that is fascinating not only for scientists but also for artists. 
if we can send a voice through a wire or if we can see inside our bodies, which are made up of tiny particles. If these things are possible, then maybe, maybe there are auras and some special people are able to see them. Maybe we could have spirit communicating with us telepathically and telling us what to paint. Toward the end of the 19th century and well into the 20th, a whole spiritualism movement, fueled by the scientific discoveries of the day, starts to spread across Europe and America. The spiritualist movement took off and it became very popular in in society and there were regularly spiritualist events that took place, lectures and demonstrations that would be held in different towns and cities. The main attraction at these events was contacting the dead. People held seances, conducted trances, sought out mediums who claimed they could tap into the spiritual world mentally or physically. Some of the most devout believers were those who lost a loved one. Mary Todd Lincoln famously organized a seance in the White House after the death of her son Willie. But spiritualism and the many branches that sprung from it had other famous enthusiasts, including writers like Victor Hugo and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and artists like Piet Mondrian, Vasily Kandinsky, and Hilma Afklint. In 1880, that is um, when she's 18, her younger sister dies. Before it might have been sort of curiosity or it might have been sort of um, something you're interested in, but as soon as you have lost a person you want to be in touch with again, I think it becomes a kind of higher importance and you get more attentive to everything that could point in the direction that it's possible to connect with the dead. But that grief over her sister's death blossoms into a desire to communicate with a whole astral plane of spirit guides. In the late 1800s, Hilma forms her own spiritualist group with four other women. They call themselves the Five, or De Femme. And this is actually something that a lot of women are doing at the time. The spiritualist group was a place where women had quite a bit of agency, and women were uh, regularly giving these lectures. The spiritualists were also associated with suffrage, in fact, and so the forming of her own spiritualist group as well as being interested in this, these ideas really clues her into a world where women had, had a voice in a, in a different way than she may have been experiencing in other parts of her life. I can only imagine how repressive it must have been for a single woman. Rebecca Quaitman is an artist in New York. She goes by R.H. Quaitman. She created about 30 abstract paintings in response to Hilma's work that are also on view at the Guggenheim. The main focus of Quaitman's work here is a series of circle and square paintings. They're much more austere and cerebral in their minimalism than Hilma's, but scattered among the other paintings are references to her inspiration. A Swedish flag, a pair of swans, the use of gold, or the cover of one of Hilma's notebooks. It's very interesting that the the rise in popularity of spiritualism went hand in hand with feminism, basically. And that suddenly it was a way to have authority and a voice. Because it wasn't your voice, it was this other voice speaking, which couldn't be questioned. So it must have been very freeing as a a kind of trick, in a way, or a kind of method to speak.
Hilma and the five meet often to communicate with a spiritual dimension. They make contact with four spirits, and they name them Gregor, Clemens, Amal Leal, and Ananda. They call them the High Masters. The five receive messages from the High Masters using a method called automatic drawing. Think of a Ouija board, but with a pencil. One woman is the conduit, and she holds the drawing mechanism. The spirit guides her hand, creating shapes and sometimes letters on paper. And Hilma becomes one of the main conduits for recording these spiritual messages. Guggenheim curator Tracy Bashkoff. It certainly sounds weirder to us and kooky today in a way that I think it didn't at the time. She is In 1904, approached by one of the spirits that she is communicating with in her weekly group. And um, the spirit asks her if she would dedicate herself to the production of a group of paintings that would ultimately guide a viewer through a visionary experience. Amaliel presented me with a task, and I immediately said yes. The expectation was that I would dedicate a year to this task. In the end, it became the greatest work of my life. I mean, I, I'm sorry, but I'm a non-believer. You know, I have to believe that all this stuff was made up. Again, New York Times art critic Roberta Smith. You know, it's, it, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to get slammed for this, but I just think it's a, a fiction that enables the work to come out. That work would be 193 paintings Hilma called Paintings for the Temple, and she made those between 1906 and 1915. They're made up of multiple series, which each have their own name, like The Ten Largest, that's one series. But there's also Primordial Chaos, The Swan, The Dove, The Seven-Pointed Star. The paintings within each group have a similar look, abstract generally, but with recognizable shapes like circles, squares, and pyramids, or images like tree-like structures and birds. Almost all of the work shares this wild palette of color that can range from soft pink pastels to shimmering golds and deep blood reds. But the paintings feel of a whole. They feel like they belong to each other. Hilma said the paintings at first came to her in this mediumistic manner through the spirits. But in those later years, her work was just inspired by those messages. But just the attempt by artists to do what Hilma was doing, to paint something non-representative, to evoke rather than show, was very much rejected by early 20th century society. Any of the artists that were working at that time were going into uncharted territory and Kandinsky's work was being thrown out of salons of even the most avant-garde artists for being too out there and and too difficult to, to interpret. Guggenheim curator Tracy Bashkoff. Often the artists that were working in these early years of abstraction, their work angered the critics and the public because of the difficulty in understanding these canvases that didn't have any recognizable imagery in it. When Hilma finishes the paintings for the temple in 1915, she's in her 50s. 
She tries again and again to get her work shown, but never gets the venue or the reception she believes it deserves. She decides in the early 1930s that she will not spend any effort anymore on trying to show it, but that she should wait and should sort of give, hand her work on to the future, to the next generation. And that's where she puts down in all her notebooks that they cannot be shown for the next 20 years after her death. When Hilma dies in 1944, she gives everything to her nephew. He sticks to her rule and puts everything away for 20 years. Then, in the 1960s, he sets up a foundation for her work. He gets help from an art historian to get it seen. But Hilma's paintings won't be shown in public until the 1980s. And even then, the future audience that Hilma was looking for, it still wasn't ready for her yet. The reception was quite bad. I think that happens until the 19th, from the 80s to the 90s. Actually, one critic calls it colored diagrams um, and says that she's, as a painter, she's just not any, anywhere close to Kandinsky. All of Hilma's work is owned by the Hilma off Clint Foundation. It has never gone to auction, which means no galleries, no museums, or private collectors own it. And this means there are fewer opportunities for the public to see it. The Hilma of Clint painting so far cannot be bought. Uh, Kandinsky can be bought and could be, uh, could have been bought. Um, and I guess the difference is that the museums have built their reputations on their collection. Um, and it's kind of counterintuitive to them to argue for the relevance of a painter that could never be part of their collection. I think if she was on the market, she would be very expensive very soon and would have a big lobby to support her. And so I think it's even more outstanding that the Guggenheim Museum did this exhibition without any kind of gallery background or any um, financial backgrounds. Decades of gender politics and the vagaries of art history and market forces may have kept Helma Offklint out of the limelight, but now she's getting her due in the biggest of ways. I still also find myself strength um, in looking at Hilma of Clint and how she dealt with what other people would have conceived as failure. Um, she certainly was kind of disappointed that the reception wasn't bigger than it was, but she had a very strong confidence in the generations to come. I think this is maybe why a lot of young people also respond to her so strongly. She's the opposite of a kind of old grumpy person who says sort of, I'm misunderstood by my times and sort of, uh, centuries ago, every, everything was better. She's a complete fu futurist. She believes sort of in the young generation to come, and she waits for us to look at it. I love the idea that she was looking for an audience for this work and that the audience is at a future time and perhaps we're that future time. Perhaps we are. Because here now, 75 years after Helma off Clint died, is another artist working in another medium, conjuring up Hilma through music. I wanted the piece to have a quasi-mystical vibe in places just to get that initial impression right off the bat, to have a sense of wit and fun, because there's so much fun in her artwork and the feeling of that whimsy and freedom. Sarah Kirkland Snyder composed an original piece of classical music inspired by Hilma Offklint's work for the Guggenheim. Early 
into my exploring, I came upon this letter that was, they're not sure whether she'd written it to herself or whether she'd taken it as dictation from one of the seances. When you do not see an outer result, this must not discourage or tire you in your effort. It seemed like a letter that one would write to oneself to remember that even in fallow periods of a creative life, there are there is growth even in tough times and to stay strong and stay focused and have faith. Just as invisible hands help and tend every plant on this green earth, so every budding sprout of goodness is tended and shaped and protected by invisible powers. And when the time comes, your eyes will open and you too will see the beautiful plant that grew in secrecy, the product of your noble endeavors and your pure intentions. It was touching to, to read, the, to find this. There's a thing that people say about art, like art is gives you something you didn't know you needed. And it was like, yeah, I didn't know I needed that. And I'm, it just it made me so happy. I felt very good about my gender. Do you know, it just was thrilling to think like another wall is tumbling down. And it was a wall that I wasn't quite aware of, but it's the big wall. You know, like what else is there? What else are we going to discover now that this has happened? That was New York Times art critic Roberta Smith. And back in the Guggenheim's rotunda, visitors echoed her sentiment. I mean, it's of course so amazing how uh, we all thought we knew the history of art, but here is this woman from Sweden that we haven't heard of, and it's, it's, it's thrilling, actually, to, to learn. People saying, like, she's kind of, like, deconstructing the canon, right, and, like, kind of recontextualizing what we think we know. But she's also, like, it's also, that's not her project necessarily. Like, she's just so deeply personal in each of her pieces, and that's what's truly inspiring, is that both of those things can be true. This is one of the greatest shows I've seen in my life, you know. I've seen a lot. <laughs> so, maybe Hilma was right. This is her audience. And her story? It starts now. That's Studio 360's Lauren Hansen. Hilma Off Clint Paintings for the Future is up at the Guggenheim Museum in New York until April 23rd. Go. The Sarah Kirkland Snyder music you heard was performed live at the Guggenheim by the Vox Vocal Ensemble. And the excerpts from Christine Bergen's book, Hilma Off Clint Notes and Methods, were read by Sarah Singh. Coming up next. The actual literary forger who Melissa McCarthy plays in the new movie, Will You Ever Forgive Me? I, I have a knowledge that what I did was, uh, was wrong, but I don't, I don't feel that uh, in the pit of my stomach. My interview with the late Lee Israel. I know what I did was wrong. Honest, Your Honor. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. I came across this letter in a collection with the signature of one of my favorites, the writer and wit Dorothy Parker. 
And the letter is so her. 83 Norma Place, Hollywood, California. Dear Joshua, Alan told me to write and apologize. I'm doing that now while he dresses for turkey dinner with the boys across the road. I have a hangover that is a real museum piece. I'm sure that I must have said something terrible. To save me this kind of exertion in the future, I'm thinking of having little letters run off saying, can you ever forgive me, Dorothy? Except that Dorothy Parker didn't actually write or sign that letter. Lee Israel did. Her book, called Can You Ever Forgive Me, tells the story of her years as a literary con artist, forging letters by all sorts of famous writers and then selling them. The memoir was just adapted into a terrific new film, also called Can You Ever Forgive Me? It stars Melissa McCarthy as Israel. Wasn't this... uh... One line here was particularly clever, don't you think? It's wonderful. I love his writing. And Dorothy Parker as well. Caustic wit, you know? Caustic wit is my religion. Melissa McCarthy and her co-star Richard E. Grant have been nominated for lots of awards for their performances, Golden Globes and Screen Actors Guild, among others. With the film now in theaters, I wanted to revisit my conversation with the real Lee Israel. She died in 2014, but I talked to her when her memoir came out in 2008. So that isn't by Dorothy Parker at all. Well, there's one line, the best line. Can you guess which it is? Well, that's really Dorothy. This I have a hangover that is a real museum piece. So the title of your book is from this purported letter by Dorothy Parker, but it's a Lee Israel line. Yes, I imagine Dorothy uh, apologizing in her waif-like way for some misdeed. Uh, and uh, and I sat down and I wrote. It's uh, in the spirit of kind of uh, jeu d'esprit. So how did you get the idea for this, this racket of, of forging famous people's letters and selling them to dealers? Well, it started, it was incremental, as most things are in life. Um, I, I was in the library where I spent most of my time foraging, and they gave me a group of, of letters, and I thought perhaps even one or two of those could pay for, for my, my kitty's uh, tests, and I, I shooed it. I took it, I walked out of the library, and I, I sold it. And I was told by the, the woman who bought my letters that, uh, which I didn't know anything about the business, but she would pay more for better content. So I went home and I typed up some better content. And then when you started forging after that instead of stealing, what, what was the first thing you forged? Actually, I don't remember where I started. I have a feeling, let me think. I, I know it wasn't Dorothy. I think the, f- the first things I forged were Noel Coward letters. And you bought not just one, but a whole series of antique typewriters on which to do this Yeah. Work. Well, finally, if I had Noel type on one typewriter and Dorothy on another and, and uh, Edna Ferber on yet another. And uh, I, finally, I had about six or seven of them in a locker I rented on Amsterdam Avenue. It looked like a very classy porn shop. That is pawn shop, not a porn shop. Not a porn shop. And it's amazing how little regulation there is. I mean, for instance, the Noel Coward letters, some of them were published in an anthology of his correspondence. That's right. Recently in a highly regarded, well-reviewed book called The Letters of Noel Coward. And uh, there were two of my letters showed up in in that uh, volume. Can we hear one of your Noel Coward letters? Okay. I've got to find it. All right. I just, this Dear Kevin, Sunday... And at the the letterhead is Les Avants sur Montreux, 
pardon my French. <laughs> Dear Kevin, I am uh, who doesn't exist. I am feeling years younger having luge this morning over perfectly packed snow. There is no substitute for oxygen in the lungs. It seems to release something very like morphine. Marlene, as I, Marlena, as I perhaps mentioned to you when we spoke, was here for almost a week. She will never change and to try to force her is folly. She moans endlessly about the ravages of aging, the betrayal of friends, the loneliness of celebrity. The silly old kraut addresses each of these problems as if, as if she were the only beautiful and celebrated creature to experience reversals. I intend to have her in my life until one of us croaks, but she is possibly the most jejune grandmother in the history of our planet. It's a very good thing that I love her. I laughed uproariously at your dogged doggerel, yours ever, Noel. It's Lee Israel's version of, <laughs> of Noel Coward. And they were among the best letters, I think. Of his? Well... <laughs> What you know? I'll tell you why. Because he, Kurt, because he didn't have to be Noel Coward when he wrote letters. He was writing letters. I had to try hard. I had to be Noel Coward, and so they were. They were cavorted. They camped. They they jumped high, jetted around. I mean, he didn't write letters like that. I was I was doing it to please dealers and to do an imitation of this terrific man who didn't have to try to be Noel Coward. How did you did you have to try to get into character? How much did you immerse yourself in their work? Did you put on a hat like they wore or poured yourself a drink? What did you do? I never poured myself a drink because, uh, you know, who was it who said John Cheever, that old womanizing alcoholic said, even a sip of sherry shows in his prose. So I never I never drink when I ride. I just I immerse myself in that wonderful thing that happens to creative people, uh, a kind of trance. The creative trance, it's as, right. it's as good as it gets. Right. Now, let's let's rewind. Before you ever got into this, you were a successful biographer. When I was in my early 30s, I, I wrote a book about Dorothy Kilgallen. I wrote a book about uh, Tallulah Bankhead. I did finally a book that wasn't so good about Estee Lauder. After the Lauder book, um, my lights dimmed a bit, and they stopped taking me to lunch. And And... You were on welfare, and and it was it was really rough. It, it wasn't was just terrible. it wasn't just that you were no longer a bestseller. What is rough? I mean, I wasn't eating roots in Niger, but <laughs> yeah. in terms of my life, it was bad. It was uh, I was alone. Yeah. She was alone. And you had, and you had, and you had a sick cat as well. I had a sick to cat. Add to the romance of the whole thing. And how much did you get for that? Those first uh, I think they're forty dollars a piece, something like that. So it wasn't a lot of money per letter. I mean, forty bucks. Forty bucks uh, allowed me to take the, my cat to the vet and find out maybe what was wrong with her. It was enough to keep me, as I say, finally in uh, in lunch and cigarettes and and rent. It was not a lot of money. In terms of the letters you forged. Uh, apart from the marketability of a given author or figure, how, how did you choose who who you wanted to do? I've, I've been thinking about that. I I know that I have certain cri- had certain criteria uh, w- which had to be met. The uh, the signature mostly had to be doable, easy. So Edna, for instance, Edna Ferber or some, Edna or Ferb, she signed her letters with a period. Very simple writing, no no loops, no swirls, no no uh, jumps. Uh, same thing, Knowles was, well, a little harder. Uh, Dorothy Parker had an easy uh, signature. They had to uh, present a challenge to me. They had to have literary epistolary styles that I thought I could duplicate and have fun doing. And I guess those are the criteria. Well, the have fun is interesting to me because they are also nearly all 
uh, sort of soigné, naughty people of a certain <laughs> period. Yeah, yeah, and a certain certain habits with alcohol and of a certain age, which meant that if I shook a little in the signature, it wouldn't tell so much. Uh-huh. But they would all, you know, you, one would want to go to the cocktail party with all most of these people. Anyway. All of them, except yeah. maybe Edna Furby. I was going to say. <laughs> um, how many letters did you write in all? I think about 400. Really? Yeah, you can see that. You can see as we sit, there's a loose leaf with copies so of everything. So basically two or three a week for the three years, something like that. I guess I didn't. You do the math. I, I, did, I did them whenever I needed to do them. There was one dealer in New Hampshire who would call and say, do you have something, uh, uh, Greta Carbo, or have you something which George Cukor has mentioned? <laughs> now, I could I always satisfied his demands. Now, what did he think? I mean, really. And what would you say? Uh, yeah, maybe I do. Uh, yeah, I have a feeling. They may, be, they may be in the country, you know, like I had a country home. Uh, I'll check. And I, I always, uh, I wasn't I, not even smart enough to say, oh, no, I couldn't. I, I always, you know, it was 80 90 $100. And... It was the Noel Coward letters that finally done me in yeah. because I, I overdid and because one of, the, uh, one of his friends who was in the market to buy Noel Coward letters was shown some of mine and knew full well that Noel, having lived at a time when homosexuality was a jailing offense, never would have put so many campy, mm-hmm. funny allusions uh, in his letters. And the stuff that's uh, homoerotic, et cetera, I got from his, his diaries. But Noel would have been much too careful to disclose as I did. What happened finally is that when once the man, the friend of Noel's, uh, discerned that there was something rotten in Denmark, he told the dealer who told other dealers, and, and finally the well was toxic, and I could no longer sell. And then as soon as the, the, the federal agents showed themselves, they didn't arrest you immediately. You, you went off trying, thinking you were going to get rid of the typewriters, destroy the evidence? Got rid of everything I could get my hands on. I scissored everything. I, I took the typewriters from the locker one by one, and they were very heavy. You know, we're talking 1940s, 1950s. And I placed them up and down various trash receptacles on Amsterdam Avenue. So you were you were finally nabbed, prosecuted, went to trial. You got off pretty easy. I did. Well, I had what well, I got six months house arrest, which is not so easy if you saw my apartment at the time. Not only did you not go to jail, you you have this uh, lovely book that's come out that is getting good reviews and and kind of kind attention. Nobody that I've seen seems to be saying, "How dare this." thief and forger get well, away with this. I know, and I'm relieved, but I, I have a knowledge that what I did was uh, was wrong. But I don't, I don't feel that uh, in the pit of my stomach. The bloggers are not being so, so kind. That's what bloggers do. I know. One of them called me a twit, and I hope he spelled it right. Somebody else called me an intellectual terrorist. I mean, so that happens. But mostly the, the, the community of writers and, no, not so much scholars, uh, of, of writers and, and peers are, are, are liking it and uh, are being very kind to me and non-judgmental. I know what I did was wrong. Honest, Your Honor. <laughs> Lee Israel, I want to thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. I had that conversation in 2008 with Lee Israel, who died four years ago. The film Can You Ever Forgive Me, starring Melissa McCarthy, is in theaters now. That interview, by the way, when we aired it on Studio 360, touched a nerve with some listeners who thought I was way too nice to her. 
You treat Lee Israel's admitted theft of manuscripts from library archives as a sort of lark, a form of literary adventure, Molly Nelson Haber wrote us. But her actions have made it all the more difficult for independent scholars such as myself to gain access to invaluable materials. Fair enough. And here's what Mary Rawson wrote from Pittsburgh. Lee Israel's crime is appalling and not at all victimless. Think of the dealers, the readers, the people referred to in the letters she invented, and finally the writers she had such fun impersonating. Coming up... I was very depressed when I was a teenager, and I probably started to be depressed younger than I knew. How a teenager spiraling downward found hope and purpose from reading the tragic modern American writer. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. Sylvia Plath, wellspring of life-affirming hope? Yep. I don't want to be hyperbolic, but it did feel like a kind of an electric shock. I'd never heard anything like it. I'd never had a feeling like that. That is next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Aha Moment is what we call our regular series that features people's stories about encountering a work of art or piece of culture that somehow changes the course of their lives. Such as Shane McRae. In 1990, he was going to high school in Oregon, a suburb of Portland. He was a certain kind of typical 10th grade kid. Kind of angry, kind of unhappy, not excited by much except sad music and skateboarding. But something was about to change for Shane. Change everything. I was very depressed when I was a teenager, and I probably started to be depressed younger than I knew. Aloha High School was a white school, and Aloha was a very white town, and I was a black kid who was into alternative music, into goth things. And in 1990, that wasn't an accessible identity. The Cured had a black drummer in, like, 87 or something for maybe a minute, and so I felt I was very by myself in this identity. I used to dress in all black because I thought that that's what goths did. And I wore this trench coat. It was a trench coat that was a little bit too small for me, but it was black and it had, the lining was kind of red plaid, but I didn't have black socks. I don't think I even really knew I could get any other color of socks. I really thought white was it. There was nothing wrong with our son, and that's final. No, it's not! One day, I was at school, and uh, someone, and, and it might have been a teacher, I'm not sure, decided to show us a movie about teen suicide. It was a made-for-TV movie from 1984, Silence of the Heart. We're all afraid to admit our feelings when we get depressed. Everybody looks like they're wearing clothes from 1984. Charlie Sheen's in it, looking young. I mean, 
Not like high school, but close enough. Hey, Lily, how's everybody doing today? We've all got the kind of feathery 80s hair. I'm not going to be here for the barbecue. Oh, skip. And in that movie, a boy ends up killing himself. And after he's killed himself, his sister, apparently in an effort to prevent other people from killing themselves, films some kind of it, almost like a PSA about suicide. Whenever you're ready, Cindy. And at the beginning of this, she reads lines from Sylvia Plath's Lady Lazarus. Dying is an art, like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like... I heard that poem, and it felt like... I mean, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but it did feel like a kind of an electric shock. I'd never heard anything like it. I'd never had a feeling like that. You could say I have a call. Suddenly, there was this thing that I was indescribably attracted to. I realized poetry could be like that, that poetry could be... could speak to how I felt, could be sad in the way that I felt sad. Sylvia Plath wrote that poem. People think of Sylvia Plath as a depressing writer. But for me, when I heard those lines by Sylvia Plath, it struck me as sad, but its sadness made me feel better. So I heard those lines. I just thought it was amazing, and it was an amazing feeling. And that day I wrote eight poems, the first of which was called Death is an Art. It ended with the phrase, and the artist is me, which I used to be too embarrassed to say or even really remember, but that's how it was. And I took the bus home, and I wrote some more. I might have written some on the bus. I definitely wrote some in my room, possibly, while Dinosaur Jr. or something else was playing. The best way I can describe it is energetic, pumped up. And there's a certain degree of feeling a little nervous that comes with that. I kept writing those few days and weeks and months after those initial eight poems. I wrote them in blue erasable ink because I really liked erasable pens. And eventually they would look terrible because the pages would have all this erased ink all over them. I fancied myself very special because I was writing these poems. and. I took every uh, opportunity to show them to uh, teachers and kids, and they said, these are good. Eventually, I speed up, and I actually check books of poetry out from the library at my high school. I checked out just whatever I saw. I checked out Linda Paston's PMAM, and I checked out Celestine Frost's An Inhuman Rival, and eventually I checked out Collected Poems of Sylvia Plath, and I just never returned it to the library. Enter the chilly no-man's land of precisely five o'clock in the morning. I made a point of putting the book on the front right corner of my desk so that anybody who saw my desk would see that I had this book, that this was, in a sense, this is who I am. creation of chairs and bureaus and sleep-twisted sheets. This sort of hyper-identification I had with Sylvia Plath, in retrospect, doesn't make a lot of sense. She's a, a white woman who lived on the East Coast in the middle part of the 20th century. I was a black man, although I guess the time I was more like a black boy, living on the West Coast in the late part of the 20th century. And yet, one of the things 
that kept me going when I was an unhappy teenager was all the energy that I put into reading about Sylvia Plath and learning more about Sylvia Plath. And so departs. But his chair and bureau are the hieroglyphs of some godly utterance. Some of the stuff that she was doing with sound and the way that she made sounds interact with each other, her sound play, I guess I would say, was the source of excitement for me. And just the excitement about language and that you could use language in the way that she did. The common ghosts crowed out, worms riddling its tongue, or walks for Hamlet. Sylvia Plath did have a very unhappy marriage. She was not an especially successful writer in her lifetime. She did not get the attention that she felt like she deserved. Later she killed herself. But what I saw was her kind of absolute and deeply passionate devotion to writing. Hand aloft, goodbye, goodbye. And I became very serious so that by the time I was 16 or so, I was fully committed. I wanted to be a poet, and it was all I was going to do. And that commitment that I first saw in Plath, I felt, was going to eventually get me to my life. When I was 18, my girlfriend got pregnant. I was in high school, and at the time, I just wasn't thinking about anything. I wasn't thinking about the future other than that I wanted to be a writer. I think that I named my daughter Sylvia after Sylvia Plath because Sylvia Plath was, I felt, responsible for my life. And having a child was in some ways a kind of ultimate expression of having a life. As far as I know, Sylvia does not read Sylvia Plath. She's her own adult now. And she lives in Portland, being a makeup artist. My great-grandmother, or her family was, was some of them, Austrians. Now I'm a poet. I live in New York City. I teach at Columbia University. I'm married. I have two other children. And I'm interested in life and not death now. Escaping to America. They're wearing heavy woolen coats. I suppose I would say my life is the kind of life that I wish Sylvia Plath could have had but she didn't have the chance to. To them, the cold spray, the white fog clings to them, their coats, it seeps into their coats. My poetry is very different from Plath's, although I still think if you really wanted to, you could see her influence. Soon, already, there is no difference between the weight of their bodies and the weight of the world. Looking back over my life, I think that at different stages, Sylvia Plath has meant different things. In the beginning, she was a window into this world that I had never seen before. Dying is an art, like everything else. Very soon after that, she became something like a guide to that world, a way to make my way into poetry. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I have a call. Soon after that, she became a model for how to be as a person in the sense that she was passionately devoted. And now I'm still very interested in Plath, but she's not, she's not the poet that most excites me. She's just the poet upon whom my life is founded, which is not a small thing. The theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amused, shout, a miracle that knocks me out. 
There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word or a tooth or a bit of blood. Shane McRae's previous poetry collection won an Annisfeld Wolf Book Award earlier this year. And his new book, The Gilded Auction Block, has just been published. Justin Glanville produced that story with production help from IdeaStream, Cleveland Public Media, including WCPN Radio. And that's it for this episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. Well, they've all got the kind of feathery 80s hair. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. At the end of it, the audience was standing up and cheering. I was too. Before he knew what he wanted to do with his life, Donald Byrd found himself at an Alvin Ailey dance performance. Tears were streaming down my face. And I thought, anything that can make people feel this way, that's what I want to do. Go. The making of one of today's great choreographers next time on Studio 360.